Would you follow after me in what Jesus called the great commandment, what the Jews called the Shema? We'll do a bit in Hebrew and then uh, join in English together. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You may be seated. The first temple in Jerusalem was built by King Solomon uh, about 960 years uh, before Jesus. It was destroyed by the Babylonians about 587 years before Jesus, 586. And uh, in the passage we're going to talk about this morning, it leads right up to it. About 70 years later, the Persians conquered the Babylonians and let the Jews rebuild the temple. And they did the best they could, but it wasn't very impressive. And so about 40 years before Jesus, King Herod the Great started on a massive building project and built the temple and enlarged it. It sized greatly and even built an artificial hill uh, to set the temple upon. But about uh, 70 uh, CE, about 40 years after the death of Jesus, this temple was destroyed by the Romans. And so Scott Hare, our pastor uh, at the Riverside campus, who spent the summer of 2012 in Jerusalem, talks about the differences in similarities in the fall of those two temples. So what are the similarities between the fall of uh, the first temple and the second and um, I think one thing that I always think about is this idea of Tishbav, which is a holiday, a day, a marker of remembrance, which um, is interesting because it's on those, it's the same day that both temples fall, uh, according to uh, the uh, tradition. Uh, and that's interesting if it's true, obviously, for all kinds of crazy cosmic reasons. And it's also beautiful if it's just a way to remember that these two things really are the same thing. Uh, And so what I would wonder is if these two things really both fall because at some point I can fall, maybe we can fall so much in love with things that we've built, even if they're God-directed. We can fall so much in love with things that we built that they actually become more central to us than maybe the scripture does, or prayer, or each other, or maybe even God. And God's jealous. And I know that can be confusing. But I think what it really just means is that he knows that if our hearts are primarily connected to his heart, then most of the rest of this is going to sort itself out quite beautifully. But if anything else gets in the way, even if a temple so extraordinary and so beautiful if if it can become an idol then it has to go and i think that that is an extraordinary loving reality of a god that says that i won't let i won't let you love something that's not worth your heart
perhaps in the opening video before the announcements, you saw the uh, Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, and that is what is left of the Second Temple. That's all that's left um, to this day. Now, the scripture this morning is still during the days of the First Temple, and we're going a little bit backwards from last week because the Temple is still standing. But the situation is this. Uh, The Babylonians, uh, ten years before uh, what we're reading today, came through and uh, punished the uh, people in Jerusalem, but let them, uh, for the most part, took away a number of people as slaves, but let them survive and left the temple standing. But then the Jerusalemites, in their wisdom, decided they would no longer pay the tribute, um, taxes to the Babylonians, and they rebelled. And so the Babylonians, in our passage this morning, have moved back in. They are laying siege to the city. It is surrounded. Jeremiah has been saying that God's told him now for 40 years that this temple is going down and this city is going to be destroyed. And it looks like these things might be coming to pass. The king doesn't really want to hear that from uh, Jeremiah, so he's put him under house arrest, and he's in the courtyard of, um, of where the guards have kept him, and that's where the scripture takes place this morning, Jeremiah 32, uh, verses 6 through uh, 10. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me, and he said, the son of uh, your uncle, uh, Shalom, Hanamel is going to come to you and say, buy my field in Anatoth, for you are the nearest living relative, and it is your duty and right to do so. Jeremiah said, exactly, it happened exactly as the Lord said. My cousin Hanamel came to me and said, buy my field in Anatoth of the territory of Benjamin. Uh, for it is yours to redeem it, possess it, and buy it for yourself. Since I knew this was the word of the Lord, I bought the field in Anatoth from my cousin Hanamel, and I weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver, and I signed the deed and had it witnessed and sealed it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have to admit to you that one of my uh, guilty pleasures uh, later on Sunday evenings is I'll turn over to uh, HGTV and uh, watch those shows like Hawaii Life, Caribbean Life, Mexico Life, where people, Island Life, where people are looking for a condo or a house on the beach. And I've, I've done this for several months, but I have to tell you recently I've sort of lost my appetite for that show. Might have something to do with Harvey. Or Irma, or Jose, or Maria. I was thinking about my friend that I drove to the meeting with on Wednesday night. We got lost together. But on the way out there, he was telling me how he books uh, his uh, uh, vacations uh, pretty far in advance. And he loves to go to, uh, to the beach. And so this coming Tuesday, he was supposed to leave and go to the beach in Sanibel Island, Florida. Well, it's not there. But not to worry, because back in August, he had also booked two weeks in Port Aransas for January. He called just to check. They told him, check back in two years. Now, I don't want to make light of uh, hurricanes and floods. As some of you know, I went through one myself uh, when I was 14 years old, Hurricane Celia in Corpus Christi. Uh, But I I described the situation to you because it helps, I think, uh, 
understand where Jeremiah is in the passage today. Basically, in chapter 32, Jeremiah is in the eye of the storm. Remember, the eye is the calm part. And you've already had part of the storm hit. Ten years earlier, the Babylonians have just crushed everything. They've gotten to Jerusalem. They've uh, captured Jerusalem. They've carted a number of people off to slavery. They've taken gold and money from the temple, and they're exacting a tribute. But in the intervening ten years, despite Jeremiah's advice, the king's decided that he's not going to pay that tribute anymore, and he's going to rebel against the Babylonians. Jeremiah's been trying to tell him, I wouldn't do this. God says this is your punishment, as we talked about a few weeks ago, for oppressing the widows, the orphans, the poor, the stranger, sacrificing your children to false gods. I mean, this this is your punishment. Take it. Uh, Well, the king didn't really like to hear that message, so he put uh, Jeremiah under house arrest. But in this calm, for the moment, it looks like the siege is not intensifying. The Babylonians have them surrounded, but apparently travel is possible. So a cousin of uh, Jeremiah's comes and says, I want you to come out here and buy this field. Buy this field. And from what Jeremiah knows, he'll never get to plant on it. He'll never get to live on it. It's going to be years before anybody from Jerusalem will get to do anything uh, with their own property, if ever. And yet he goes and he buys this land and signs the deal, and records it and puts it in one of those clay jars you may have seen in the video at the start of the service, big jar about this big. That's where they put public records and documents. And so it raises the obvious question, what is he thinking? Why does he buy land he'll never get to use? And part of the answer is, well, it's probably on sale. I bet his cousin gave him a good price. You know, uh, after destruction, you probably could get a good deal on some condos. But that's not really what's going on here. Something else far more important is going on. And to understand it, you have to understand the situation, which is, in a word, hopeless. There are no possibilities. One uh, commentator has called this really the edge of the abyss. Because all you can see for the present and the long-term future is the presence of the Babylonians. And for 40 years, Jeremiah has told them this is going to happen. Why did he do this when he will never use this land? Well, he did it, I believe, because in a hopeless time, God is calling on him to enact a sign of hope. Because by buying that land, he's saying, now, I may not in the next few years get to do this land, but one day we will. One day my family will live on this land. One day we will plant vineyards. One day life will come back. It's an amazing sign of hope. And I want to talk with you a little bit about that sign of hope this morning. And there's just two things I need you to know, actually, about the sign of hope. And the first one is, the sign of hope is not based on any uh, wisdom or strength or cunning on the part of the Jerusalemites that, that Jeremiah conceives. In other words, there's nothing humanly possible they can do to defeat the Babylonians. It's just not going to happen. There's, the, only, the only explanation is that Jeremiah knows that God has told him to do this and God has promised just as surely as the temple will fall, the land one day will be restored and the temple will be rebuilt. It's not about our wisdom. It's not about our might. It's not about our strength. It's not about our ability to hold the fort. It's up clearly about what God is doing. And one of the things that interests me about this passage 
is that when you read Jeremiah, you come to inescapable conclusion that God has never promised us an easy path in life. It's just not there. Jeremiah didn't come and say, uh, hey, don't worry, nothing bad's going to happen to you. The Babylonians are going to disappear. Everything's going to be good. He's like, no, things are going to be bad, but things are going to be restored. Um, This week, uh, Pastor Daryl Smith, who's preaching in the gym, sent me a TED Talk by a poet and a philosopher named David White. You may have heard heard of him. He's from uh, England. He's of Irish descent. And he, had a, he has a fascinating theory about what he calls the conversational nature of reality. And he said that our life is always a clash between two things. The person that we want to be and the life we want to live and the world that we want to inhabit. And he said none of those things are exactly as we want them. And that it's in that space between ourselves and our difficulties and our limitations and the world and its unwillingness to bend to our will that somewhere in there he says is where you find reality and he said the problem is that a lot of people don't want to live in reality they want to live under illusion he said he said as i go around and speak different places and uh talk with different groups he said i found three basic illusions that people have The first illusion that people have is that they can build a world where they will not be vulnerable. They can build their tower or their walls high enough or thick enough, or they can put enough pillows on the floor that they never fall and never hurt. And he says that's an illusion. To live in this world is to be vulnerable. He said the other, another illusion people has, have is that you can arrange your life in such a way that you will not ever have your heart broken. And he says, that's an illusion. He said, in fact, for those of you who are married, your spouse is specifically designed to break your heart. They're just not going to be able to do everything you want at the time you want it done. And then he said, your children do the same. He said, they watch you carefully for 10, 12, 15 years. They study and watch your every move. They know your every weakness. And at the moment you're in the kitchen preparing probably something very nice as a treat for them to eat, he said, they will say something that psychologically just takes the stiletto and puts it in your back. Not because they're bad, but that's just human nature. He said, we cannot design our life in such a way that our hearts will not be broken, that our lives will not be vulnerable. And then he said, and the third illusion is this. He said, we think we can construct our life in such a way that we can walk on a path and we can see the whole destination from where we're standing at this moment. And that just doesn't happen. The world changes too fast. Our vision uh, is too cloudy. Our ability to shape the future is too limited. You cannot see there from here. And when you realize that, you realize that you are right where the people of Jerusalem are 587 years before Jesus. They're very vulnerable. They're under siege. Uh, their their faith has, has been shattered in so many ways. Their heart is broken, and from where they are, they cannot see a thing. And in the midst of all of this, Jeremiah goes to buy a piece of land because he says, even though you and I can't see the future and the present looks pretty stinky, the two things are true. God is in the present, and God is already in the future And we buy this land because we know, he says, that God is in the future. So the first thing I want you to know is that this sign of hope is is not because of anything we can or can't do. It's because of God. The second thing is 
It's a very public act. It's a very public symbol of hope. He buys this land when nobody else is going to buy any land. He makes sure that it is, it is signed, sealed, and, and taken to the title office and put in as secure a vault or safe as they can, they can have in their day as a way of saying, this is going to happen. It's a very public sign of faith in what's going to happen. And I think he does that not just because God tells him to do it, but he does it because that's what the people around him need. They need some sign of hope. Now, as some of you know, I'm a pretty big sports fan. And and one of the things that I've noticed the last few weeks in some games I'm watching is is there will be a team that's struggling. They're not hitting on all cylinders. They're not doing well. And they'll come up against it, and and it'll be like a critical situation, fourth down, and they probably ought to punt because they've been so stinky all day, but they'll go for it. And the announcer will always say, the coach is sending a message to his team. He believes in them. And so he's going to have them go for this even though the odds are against it. The coach is doing a public symbol of hope in the midst of a very difficult situation. And that's what the coach has sent Jeremiah into the game to do, to say, it looks bad. It will be bad. But it is not over by any means. Now, why do I bother to tell you all this? Because I think if there's one word I could use to describe how people feel uh, about this present day uh, would be hopeless. You know, they look out sometimes and they see the natural disasters and and so they're tempted not to rebuild or build it all. Uh, Others uh, have limited hope because uh, they see such division in our country politically Racially, along class lines, and others look out and they see sort of the declining uh, role of the church in American culture and society today. There's just lots of reasons to not be exceedingly optimistic. So what shall we do? Seems like Jeremiah's answer is pretty clear. Uh, one you can, thing you can do is, is hope that you could click your heels together three times and it's all going to be just like it was 20 years ago. But that's not going to work. Longing for the past does not bring about the past because God is not in the past. God's in the present and in the future, moving us there. Now, when we forgive, God is in the past. So I'm wondering if what God wants from us today in these difficult days is public signs of hope. That maybe the best thing you can do is not long for an earlier day or call into talk radio and talk about how wonderful an earlier day would be or post the latest Facebook message that, that would uh, uh, talk about how bad today is. And maybe God wants you to engage in some positive sign that says, I believe in the future God is bringing even though I cannot see it right now. Um, one of the things that I do after church is I always go and, and get caffeine, and most of you are probably glad I don't do it before church. And I, I walk in, uh, still dressed for church, about 12.40, and one of the reasons I do that is I simply want to say, I think there's a God. I'm still showing up every Sunday, believing in that God. One of the things I do when I study at Trinity Library is I don't look... Uh, I take my Bible and not my Bible app on the phone because I think it's important. They're studying the library to open a Bible so people can go, that's a Bible. 
I think it's important to say in the, as a public sign in front of others that I believe even when so many don't believe. Maybe God's calling on you in some public act of faith. Uh, maybe that disasters are overwhelming and yet you still give to a charity even though the need seems endless. Uh, maybe the political divisions and the words of your opponents are just just too overwhelming for you, and yet you still will publicly state to your friends, well, we should listen and try to understand why the uh, this other position, why that person feels the way they do. Or maybe, maybe we should pray. I believe public acts of hope and times of perceived hopelessness are what God's people and the larger world need today. And so here we are in Communion Sunday, World Communion Sunday, and I have to tell you there is no bigger sign of hope than coming forward this morning and taking communion. Because when you take communion, you are saying three things. Number one, you probably realize there aren't any reserved seats here at this table. You're believing in a God that treats and, uh, and loves all people equally. And you're assenting, you're, you are assenting to that when you come forward. And uh, when we recite what God has done in Christ on the cross and you come forward, you are assenting that reconciliation is one of the key messages of the gospel. That God has put us here not to accentuate our divisions, but in Christ to overcome those divisions and come together. And when you come forward, you remember that Jesus said, I'm going to drink this cup, but I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to drink it again until we are all together at the renewing of all things, which is basically the way they talked in Judaism, which means the, the day when everything gets restored and put back together. And when you come forward, you're saying, I believe that one day things will be put back together. And until that day, As a public sign of faith, I'm going to keep acting as if it's true until it actually becomes true.